Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. The Drugs Addiction Recovery Podcast. My name is Lucas Rickard, and welcome, everyone. I'm ecstatic this morning because we've got a great guest today. So let me introduce you to Anthony Ryan Hatch. Anthony, or Tony, as he's uh, okay with being called, is an associate professor of science and society at Wesleyan University, where he's also a member of the African American Studies Program, College of the Environment, and holds an appointment in the Department of Sociology. He's an expert in healthcare medicine, science, technology, as well as social inequality and dimensions of power. His areas of interest are science and tech studies, medical humanities, critical race theory, as well as radical ecology and sociology of knowledge. So in 2016, Tony wrote Blood Sugar, Racial Pharmacology and Food Justice in Black America. It's a fantastic book. But today he's with us to talk about silent cells, the secret drugging of captive America. It examines how social institutions use psychotropic drugs to manage captive populations in the United States. It's provocative, it's interesting, and we're really happy to have him with us today. So welcome. Thank you for having me. It's good to be with you. Well, it's, it's just fantastic you're here. And uh, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? I guess some of the steps that put you on the pathway to this uh, this very cool project? Sure. Um, you know, I think like most, you know, academics, you know, I took a, 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 an indirect, nonlinear route to, to, to the present moment. Um, um, I had a, a background in public community-based public health research, and that led me into the sociology of health, um, where after many years I came to study um, the sociology of science and, and medicine and knowledge. Um, and uh, after I graduated from graduate school, I took a, a, a brief fellowship um, at the Morehouse School of Medicine in Atlanta. Um, that fellowship was focused on HIV AIDS, substance use, and mental health in prisons and jails. Um, I had had some previous experience working on HIV prevention work in prisons and um, Based on my dissertation work, uh, which became blood sugar, I had been interested in the kind of racialization of pharmacology and the racialization of drugs and drug markets, and so was was already kind of thinking about a you know uh, thinking about a project for this fellowship that would allow me to continue my interest in in health inequality somehow, and so I just got a. a a flash of an idea to kind of follow drugs into the prison, right? Like what, you know, what's going on with the prison system uh, in terms of drugs, drugs management, drug, you know, pharmacy practices, just the full picture. Um, One day, um, and this is a story I tell in the book, uh, a a woman came to visit with us, the other, the fellows, she was a, 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 a psychiatrist who had worked in the Georgia Department of Corrections for many years. Um, and she gave us a presentation on, you know, prison mental health practices and research and best practices and such. And at the end of her presentation, I asked her, you know, what she thought about the use of psychotropic drugs in prisons. Uh, 
I had found very little in the research literature up until that point. There wasn't much to kind of to hang your hat on. And um, so this 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 former prison psychiatrist, you know, kind of smiled and smirked and rocked back on her heels. And she said, let me put it to you this way. Each year, the warden sends me and my staff a nice bottle of something because he knows we keep the prisons quiet. And I mean, it was a shocking kind of statement for her to make um, in my mind. And I just became fixated with, you know, is this right? You know, um, to what extent are prisons using psychotropic drugs to, to manage unruly uh, violent inmates or to control population in prison? Um, how do you even get at that question? Um, and so I became, you know, just fascinated by both the kind of political puzzle that this project invoked in terms of thinking about men and women and, uh, and persons who are incarcerated in the nation's prisons and jails um, and the kind of crisis of mass incarceration, but also the epistemological knowledge problem that seemed to reveal itself, right? That we, we, you know, what kind of information would you need to have access to, to be able to evaluate the question, are prisons using these drugs for ill purposes? And so, um, you know, that, 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 that day, it was the genesis for the project. And, and after many years of, of, of twists and turns, um, it became the thing that it, that it is. It's really a powerful way to begin the book. And, you suggest uh, in that introduction you're not particularly interested in in liberal science as you as you tackled this big big topic, but you want to engage in liberatory social science. So, can you just unpack that? What do you mean by this? Um, you know, as part of that fellowship program, um, the other fellows and I we were all young black scholars early career assistant professors, being groomed to pursue um, careers in research that involved uh, soliciting the NIH, at, at particularly the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, for grant money. Um, so we were all kind of, you know, shepherded toward designing, you know, kind of pilot studies that were safe, were recognizable to the NIH, that would increase the likelihood that we would be able to get a little bit of funding, right? Um, and, and maybe if we were lucky, I think the idea was that we would stumble across a project that could have real significance uh, for not just for ourselves, right, in a careerist sense, but also for people who were incarcerated and for the people who work in the prison. Um, and um, some of my colleagues, all, all smart, competent, capable, lovely people, you know, did the right thing. They tried to figure out, you know, you know, how to put together a project that would be, would be acceptable within the context of of, of a state science uh, that, um, in my mind, had no interest in in opposing the prison. So I just became, you know, uh, I couldn't envision doing a project on prisons, and you know, uh, that merely aimed to reform. This, the, the, the prison as, as a political project. I just wasn't interested in, in tinkering, right? The history of, of imprisonment uh, and prison reform, you know, it is just one you know, case after the other of a reform that turns dark, reform that gets hardened and then creates its own problems. You know, it was the failure to think systematically 
and holistically about the prison um, uh, as an oppressive institution that I think I was not interested in participating in. So I just was, I mean, thinking, how can I do this project in such a way that it, it's both a rigorous um, and well-sourced, but also, um, you know, uh, uh, works to uh, upend uh, to work against the prison uh, and actually works for the liberation of people um, as best I could possibly manage it, right? I just, I kept thinking about, um, you know, how easy it is for scientific, you know, projects to get incorporated into the apparatus of power, right? They can very easily get co-opted and rebranded re and reused and used to make them stronger. And I just, I just was committed from day one to trying to get around that somehow, um, and 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 that's where the idea came to really use only publicly available documents for the project, right? Um, you know, I, I did not want to have to seek the permission of the prison system to examine it. I didn't want to have to make not one argument to a uh, a warden as to the you know the necessity of my project or its importance or what have you. I didn't want to have to soften it. And any of the kind of liberal scientific speak that allows us to get in now, um, you know. So I just I wanted to have no complicity whatsoever with the system as as best I could manage it. So that's what inspired me to over many years again, you know, to kind of to think about what what do we know that's in the public domain that doesn't require the state's permission. You got to follow up on this then quickly. Did this cause problems for yourself during the research process? Uh, it, it did. I mean, certainly while I was a fellow, I mean, my, my, my colleagues were completely confused as to what I was trying to do. And I mean, admittedly, early on, I had no idea what I was trying to do. Um, uh, you know, I, this is a project where I, I literally had to kind of assemble a methodology on the fly. Uh, um, and so it, it, it created continual problems for me. One, one problem, for example, um, is in the is in terms of data, right? What what population data has the government collected about prisoner mental health practices, so the prescription of psychotropic drugs, and the like, right? Just what official uh, surveys, what censuses has the government engaged in that produce this information? Um, even in just kind of tackling that question, right? It uh, it was that. The, the kinds of questions that the government asked about these practices didn't quite get at the root of the issue, right? They didn't, they weren't quite illuminating what I needed them to illuminate. So um, uh, the, the, what was publicly available in some ways illuminated like a shadow knowledge or a dark knowledge, or I think in the book, I call it a non-knowledge, right? That, uh, that, that exists simultaneously with what we, with what we do know. So um, uh now that that problem uh, persisted um, throughout the entire project. Uh, each chapter presented its own kind of puzzle in terms of how to how to get at this uh, uh, in a rigorous way. So let's maybe stay, uh, take a step back for a second because I want to make sure that listeners have a good grasp of this important argument that you're making. So you powerfully suggest that psychotropic drugs. Uh, effectively manage uh, two kinds of silent cells. And that's the name of the book, obviously. So one is at the level of the bodies and the brains of captive people. And then the other, the second, is at the level of knowledge about the material effects 
of those drugs on people. So it's a complicated uh, and important uh, argument that you're putting forward. Can you sort of uh, detail this for us or break it down a little bit? Sure. Um, the, the first argument that uh, psychotropic drugs, and again, by psychotropic, I'm referring to you know, a whole range of compounds. Um, uh, it's kind of a gross umbrella term, psychotropics, but that refers to a whole sub, uh, includes several subcategories of pharmaceuticals that are used ostensibly to treat uh, mental health problems. We're talking about antipsychotic drugs, antidepressants, anti-anxiety drugs, mood stabilizers, and the like. Um, and, you know, as medicines, they are and should be used in the prison to help uh, prisoners manage the symptoms associated with psychic distress. Uh, prison itself is stressful. So it, it, even if uh, prisoners don't come into the prison with a mental health problem of some kind, they might certainly develop one over their incarceration. So, uh, you know, psychotropics have a place in prison, right? They are, there's, there's a role they should play. For sure. Um, but uh, there were so many kind of isolated stories, whether they were in legal cases or in journalistic accounts of, uh, you know, uh, for example, there was a group of, uh, of, of young boys in an Indiana uh, state reformatory in the 1970s, Indiana Boys School. And in a, in, a, in a court case, it was revealed that these boys were, you know, uh, were um, injected with psychotropic, different psychotropic drugs literally to keep them kind of under control and sedated. Um, uh, several ca a, a case of a group of women in the late, late 1970s, uh, similarly in a New York prison, again, they were transferred from the prison to the psychiatric local psychiatric hospital where they were uh, um, involuntarily injected with psychotropics for a period of several days. Um, there's all these anecdotal cases of, of, the, of the state in the form of the prison, using these drugs to sequester, to, to silence, to uh, to sedate, literally sedate uh, people who were, uh, were who were understood to be some kind of a danger, right? Um, and so uh, that it's that silencing. Uh, you know, another uh, legal analyst used to call this the chemical straitjackets, right? In uh, probably my my most famous, or pardon me, my most favorite. Um, uh, kind of passage from the book, I'm, I'm, I'm recounting uh, a letter that a group of Leavenworth prisoners wrote to con they wrote to Congress in 1980, and they were contesting, you know, uh, a whole series of unjust practices, and and they called this practice of injecting psychotropic drugs involuntarily into people who didn't have mental health problems. They called it mad techno totalitarianism, right? Yeah. And they called it techno totalitarianism, and um, so so that is one argument. It's trying is trying to get around, get my arms around: is the government, is the state using psychotropic drugs uh, for to 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 subordinate the 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 brains of these persons in in a complex nest of ways? Um, I use the term. Um, uh, spirit murder, borrowing from legal theorist Patricia Williams, to describe what I what I think is happening, and 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 in, in terms of this first argument, again, the you know uh, Patricia Williams describes spirit murder as the uh, the the disregard for those 
whose lives depend on our regard, right? That these are people whose lives depend on us caring about what's happening to them because they are truly, in effect, you know, a powerless, uh, or they cede some of their autonomy to the state because they're held captive. And you know, the, the this these psych drugs um, can um, can serve that that purpose uh, to to kill the spirit. Uh, uh, of the person who is subordinated. This maybe this is no more clear than in uh, just to back out of the prison for just a minute. In the case of uh, nursing homes, uh, uh, you know, I document in one of the chapters. You know, nursing the use of psych meds in nursing homes has been a perennial problem for decades. Uh, you know, of creating the kind of you know the cultural kind of zombie, the elder who's a zombie, you know, sitting in in in, in, a, in a corner. Um, of of the nursing home, um, thorazined out, um, you know, and so you know there were, um, and that that's again is a situation where we could argue that that's in fact what what is happening. Um, the so the the it was very difficult to um, to amass a body of archival evidence that could could could, could prove that the state had in fact engaged in these practices. In the in the prison, right? It was much more. It's very hard to get direct evidence of that. That, in fact, leads to the second puzzle, right? That if we can't have direct evidence of this, because there's not, there's no mechanism of data collection out there to be able to produce the information we would need to evaluate that claim. Right. So the 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 silencing of persons is linked to this knowledge problem. The silencing of knowledge. If we don't know what they're doing in there. They can do pretty much anything. And so that's where the, the bigger kind of political argument in the book really becomes apparent is this is not about using medicines to, to, to treat the mental health problems of people. That's part, one of the meanings of psychotropics that circulate in prison. The other is much more is has to do with, with a kind of a death dealing, right? And when you don't collect information about what's happening in the prison, you permit the prison to engage in psychic violence. Um, and so, I mean, I, I just see those, the, those two pieces as intimately connected, the use of psych meds, uh, to, to, to silence prisoners, and then the state's failure to produce robust information about those practices that would allow us to evaluate whether or not what they're doing is, is constitutional or medical or ethical, um, and so the, the, I see those two problems as intimately connected. So the title of Silent Cells has got many meanings. It's, uh, and it captures different elements of silence. I think so. And, you know, there's a long tradition of scholarship in m multiple fields, particularly in feminist theorizing around, uh, around that discourse of silence. And, you know, what, what silencing a group of people... Um, means um you know silence becomes a mechanism by which you can can disappear a people right uh uh they literally can can be written off the map um and so uh you have feminists like um, like uh, among others Patricia Hill Collins talking about coming to voice coming to power you know people saying that when when we are able to speak out and be recognized and have a standpoint we can our position should change change things and i think that's Kind of what I'm trying to articulate in this book is that if we give, uh, bring to light, if we give voice to 
these stories of 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 suffering uh, in the prison and without the prison, maybe we can can help to to move things along. Um, you know, one example of this is um, Camila Brock, um, who is a um, a black woman uh, living in New York, who in 2014 uh, was stopped in her BMW. Right, she was a, a a banker. Maybe you might remember the story. She was a banker, got stopped in her BMW, got apprehended, detained, uh, and then was uh, was sent to Harlem Hospital's psych ward for a number of days. Was forcibly injected with lorazepam, lithium. This woman had no mental health problems, right? But was in, involuntarily injected with psych meds and was held there. Uh, for a number of days, and you know the, the the state's power to to take you and apprehend you and just come literally just kind of hold you up. It, it was it was more than just them apprehending her actual body. It said they had to then make the additional intervention into her kind of psychic brain space, right? The kind of the the neurochemical biochemical intervention that accompanied the physical apprehension, um, and you know that that the the state's power to take you in those ways. I think how we have to expand how we think about that to include the in, the intrusion of psychopharmaceuticals. So on that note, I had to ask about pharmacies. Yeah, I, I teach in the school of pharmacy. Uh, I, I uh, these are the students I deal with all the time. And in chapter two, uh, you focus on prison pharmacies. So can you just tell us a little bit about some of your findings with respect to the role of pharmacies in prisons? Sure. This this is a, a chapter called the Pharmacy Prison uh, that I wrote in in collaboration with a uh, 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 longtime you know friend, colleague, former student Renee Shelby, and um, you know again many years ago, going back to maybe 2010, 11, Renee and I uh, in doing some background research for this book. You know, would come across um, a, a, what's called an audit, right? A, a, an audit of the prison pharmacy, right? So this is where a jurisdiction, a say, a state government uh, sends in their state auditor into the prison, into the prison pharmacy, to evaluate what's going on in the pharmacy. Um, the you know, for example, an auditor might be concerned principally with how much money. The, the, the prison pharmacy is spending, and they might engage in a systematic review of expenditure, inventory systems, and the like to get uh, a, a handle on where they might save money. So Renee and I began to collect uh, these audits wherever we, we could. We began a kind of an exhaustive and open search uh, to collect, and we, we collected, I think, in the end, 33 um, audits that uh, of prison pharmacies, and they ranged from an audit of the federal prison system, several different states, as well as local city and county jail facilities um, around the country. And these are fascinating documents, these audits. Yeah. You, would, you would presume, at least we assumed, that the audit could provide us a really interesting window into how the state understood its own practices. Um, uh, and it really exposes the, the kind of logic of pharmacy management that, that the, and, and, and part of the, the bureaucratic challenges, I think, of running a prison pharmacy. So uh, one of the key findings that, that uh, the key interpretations we make based upon a review of these you know, several dozen audits 
is that um, the inventory and record-keeping systems of prison pharmacies are wholly and grossly inadequate. Wow. So this is, you know, the prison pharmacy as a, as a, you know, does not know what's coming in and going out, right? Uh, you know, for, for, for example, in the state of California, hundreds of thousands of dollars and just lost medication. Um, many jurisdictions did not have a procedure in place for restocking unused medication. So if a prisoner is transferred, for example, to another facility, the drugs they were taking or the, ph the pharmacy benefits that they were using, they just kind of hang around. Uh, in the book, I show a picture from a California audit where there's literally just bags of drugs sitting around in the prison pharmacy. Now, the auditors took these pictures and included them in the audit. Um, the California auditors described the the California situation as a, a roadmap from despair to excellence. Right. Um, so the inventory and record keeping systems were were wholly inadequate. Um, the uh, uh, another finding is that many jurisdictions are turning to uh, various technologies to try to solve the inventory problem. Right. So they're moving from paper based record keeping systems to computerized record keeping systems. But uh, uh, in one, for example, in one jurisdiction, they had put in this big new digital record keeping system. But the pharmacists didn't, didn't trust it. And so they kept a separate tally. Like there were two ledgers, right? There's the computer ledger, then there's the hand, handwritten ledger. Um, so the technology, you know, hasn't necessarily solved the problem. It's actually created a new problem. Um, I think by far the biggest problem um, that, the, that the auditors identified across the country was sheer, was cost, right? So in particular... The second generation antipsychotic medications are being uh, are extremely expensive, and are being um, it's hard to say overused, right? But uh, they certainly think they wanted to find alternatives to their because they were just so god awful expensive. Um, uh, so connected to that problem, finally, is the problem of waste, right? Uh, enormous pharmaceutical waste. Uh, you know, no procedures in place to deter to figure out what we do with the drugs when we don't need them. Um, uh, just uh, um, uh, a wholly inefficient process overall. And so, again, here here we were thinking that we could go to the prison pharmacy uh, to get information about what's happening. Maybe that could shed light on whether or not drugs are being misused. Uh, but but the pharmacy certainly would, even if we had full access to it, as the auditors did, uh, the information is not there. Um, you know, one finally, you know, one one piece. Uh, I think it was in, in the state of Minnesota. The auditors actually, you know, mentioned that you know it's possible that these drugs are being misused, right? That the segments are being misused in the prison, but they say, you know, we don't have the expertise to evaluate that question, right? So, the um, the, the the I think that's probably in my mind the most innovative and important chapter in the book because it really lays bare the huge apparatus that um, is in place to, to, to distribute drugs in prisons. Um, and again, it's a, it's a history I hadn't, or a structure I hadn't seen articulated anywhere. So, I mean, I just have to say that when I was reading that chapter, my, my jaw was just dropping and I was constantly slapping my head. Uh, many of my colleagues here in the School of Pharmacy would probably just fall over if yeah. they read this. It was um, it just the inefficiency uh, and the waste that you, you describe uh, is mind-boggling, uh, and in chapter three, just to change directions, yeah. you talk about 
the drug testing. Mm -hmm. uh, you analyze some of the drug testing in prisons, uh, what, and it was equally fascinating. Uh, so what did you learn about some of these carceral experiments? So in, in my um, effort to try to understand, you know, when I was just became curious of when, when did psychotropics enter the prison, right? If they're there now, when when did this kind of start? I found it very difficult to actually get, you know, good information on that question. <laughs> was, yeah. you know, I it became just a kind of a, a puzzle. Nonetheless, I um, I traveled to the National Library of Medicine in Bethesda to try to get any er, early archival, you know, stuff from the twenties and thirties, forties. Um, I went to the Bioethics Research Library at Georgetown. Um, to examine uh, the documents for the National Commission for the Protection of Human Subjects in Biomedical and Behavioral Research. It's a mouthful. No kidding. Um, because I knew that these institutions um, had had been keeping some keeping track of what had been happening. And so what I discovered um, after doing some of this archival work was that uh, American pharmaceutical companies had been set up in the prison um, as early as the 30s and 40s. Like there was some you know, low-level collaborations between wardens and different pharmacists to test compounds. Um, and uh, they had a presence there um, in, the, in the prison. Um, by the time um, the uh, 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 1960s came around, um, and the, this is after the Nuremberg trial, this is after it was, you know, exposed what the Nazis had been doing, I recount in the, in the chapter one interesting moment in the Nazi about the Nazi the the doctor's trial for at Nuremberg, where one of the the doctors says you know, basically you know we learned what we're doing from you guys right wow. we were when we were conducting experiments on our internees we were looking and collaborating with American physicians who had been engaging in research in in prisons uh, you know for some time already. Um, Nonetheless, um, there was one, you know, kind of fact that drove my, my, my thinking, and that was um, one FDA commissioner in the in the late nineteen seventies was asked um, uh, by Jessica, Jessica Mitford, who was a, a British journalist who wrote about uh, prisons and the and the prison business in a in a lovely book called Kind and Usual Punishment. Um, but in in her papers, she had correspondence with an FDA commissioner at the time. Who estimated that uh, upwards of ninety percent of all pharmaceutical products that were tested between nineteen sixty two, sixty three, and nineteen seventy nine, when the four tier clinical trial system was really put in place, ninety percent of phase one and phase two trials were conducted on prisoners of various kinds. Ninety um, percent of all FDA approved compounds of all of all sorts. Um, and so the people like Alan Hornbloom, who documented this in terms of dermatology at the, at, in Pennsylvania, um, uh, was, was one guidepost for me, Harry Washington's work on prison experimentation. But I, I just was curious, is that how did this guy know this, right? How did he know that they were doing such experimentations? And, and obviously I was concerned with whether or not um, psych meds had been, were among those compounds tested in prisons and what those protocols looked like. In other words, I began to think about this as the the psych meds were already in the prison. Uh, they they kind of always been there, right? Uh, um, and so, um, uh, um, 
it wasn't just the the the, the introduction of psych myths to the prison that I became concerned with. Uh, I uh, began in the chapter explore the kind of racial um, politics around ethics uh, about who could be in a drug study. Um, this this is a classic situation where you know you start start a particular chapter and with one idea, then it turns into something else that I think is actually maybe more interesting. Um, but uh, in the in the 1970s, um, as prison drug experimentation became public, like it became known that this was happening, um, groups all around the country were obviously took took issue with this, including the National Commission, which took this up in the in the mid to late 1970s. Um, and um, uh, minority groups, particularly black uh, social groups um, and activists, you know, were saying that, um, wait a minute, you know, the if drug experiments are happening in the prison, you know, are black prisoners, Latino prisoners, native prisoners more likely to be involved in more experiments and the riskier experiments, right? Are they the kind of special guinea pigs for this work? And um, that had been the kind of standard interpretation, right? That because the prison system was overwhelmingly or disproportionately comprised of people of color, that they must also then be more likely to be involved in its studies, right? That the disproportionality would transfer to the studies. Well, what, what, from the work I was able to uncover, that, it doesn't seem to be the case. Huh. It seems to have been the case was that white male prisoners were more likely to be included in drug studies, right? There were real material benefits attached to participation. Um, for one, prisoners often were compensated financially. So I, I saw um, fee schedules where, you know, uh, you'd get $200 for a biopsy or $5 for, you know, a certain kind of uh, biological sample being taken, right? So the prisoners would make, it was a source of income to, to participate in, in the study. Um, you got time off the block. So you got to leave your cell, come down to the clinic, be hang out with the other guys. Many prisoners uh, took jobs working for the drug companies as clinic as technicians in the labs. Wow. Uh, um, yes, uh, 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 there's a, a, a prison at Southern uh, the the prison the pardon me the Michigan prison at Jackson uh, in the 1960s. Bristol Myers Squibb built a 10,000 square foot research facility there in 1965. Right? So they were they were really expanding. So the pardon me, the white male prisoners were able to to participate, and I think most interestingly, um, participation in a drug study was framed as a as a patriotic act, right? That for these men who were principally men who were incarcerated, that 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 this would be one way that they could make a contribution to American society, right? Uh, there had been this discourse of patriotism had. And and participation extended back to the malarial drug studies in the nineteen uh, in the post in the World War II era, right where prisoners were also kind of volunteered. Uh, um, Nancy Campbell's work looking at uh, the the uh, there's one particular prison in Kentucky where they studied drugs and addiction. Um, so but the the participating as a as a research subject in a drug study was framed by drug companies as a way for prisoners to be patriotic and. You know, the white male prisoners were the seemingly the only ones who could be true patriots in this sense. Um, and uh, so that's that's how I interpret that history. But um, no one really knows, you know, how there's never been a full accounting to this day of the 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 the, the role that prisons play 
in, in the expansion of the American pharmaceutical industry and in their access to free clinical labor, cheap clinical labor for decades. It's really appropriate too, considering we're, uh, we're um, recording this the day before the 4th of July. It's appropriate that we talk about patriotism. Right. You know, um, and I, I found it fascinating. I mean, the, 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 the Pharmaceutical Manufacturers Association of America you know, held a, a private conference in 1973 where they were beginning to freak out about whether or not the government was going to shut down their operation. And they, they literally are you know, t- telling each other, look, we got to figure out how we can keep access to these, to these prisoners because if we don't have access to them, what are we going to do? And so they were, you know, they even went so far as to, as to say that uh, prisoners had a right to participate in the study, right? They framed this as somehow a, a right that they had um, uh, and that not allowing them to participate would be a further abrogation of their rights. So, you know, they were just unscrupulous in terms of how uh, aggressively they pursued um, that population for clinical experimentation. It's, um, look, it's it's obvious, uh, Tony, that you're contributing to vitally important current events and, and debates. I mean, we've talked a little bit about this at, at the beginning, too, when you um, discussed liberatory social science. Um, I guess I, I have to ask, who is it that needs to read this book the most? I mean, if you had to pick a through a target audience or demographic, who would who would it be? Um, it's a good question. Um, I I wrote this book, um, you know, initially um, to be a resource for abolitionists, right? I wanted. And, and I think this is still too, I want the book to be useful to those persons and groups who are working to improve the quality of life for people who are in fact incarcerated and to push for reform efforts, uh, not even just reform, I misspoke, uh, efforts to, to end the prison, to rethink how we do this, not just in terms of prisons, but in terms of the other institutions that I chronicle in the book. So as the book started out, it's, again, it's just about prisons, but it became about so much more. It was about the active duty military and the fact that the government, uh, you know, is now shipping psych meds out into the live war zones um, to uh, help um, uh, uh, keep soldiers on the battlefield, right? Uh, it's about the, I think, and for me, what is the most unconscionable practice uh, in the book is the use of psych, reports of the use of psych meds in immigrant detention facilities for youth. Um, just insane, um, in my mind, just t- torture. Uh, this is a, a, a violation of a profound violation of human rights. In my, in my mind, I see it as a war crime <laughs> to, to kind of, to, you know, be forcibly injecting, uh, young children with psych meds in order to keep them sedated. So there was a, a story of the Shiloh treatment center in Manville, Texas in 2018, uh, which I recount in the book where, these officials are drugging down these babies, man. You know, and so in my mind, the audience for the book it started out as kind of a you know a little policy argument, but it's turned into something much broader. If you have somebody, an elder in your family who's in a nursing home, if you have concern for the children at the border, if you have concern for our soldiers, the soldiers of the nation, um, then this book you know, should concern you and should should in my mind freak you out a little bit. And have us rethink, you know, what what it is we're doing 
in these institutions. Uh, in the concluding chapter, I talk about this as an institutional addiction. Like we have these institutions in place and they can't do what we're asking them to do without these drugs. So we have to rethink how, what we're doing then, you know? Um, and so, um, you know, I think that, you know, if you have, if you have concern for the least among us, for people who are held captive, then I think this is a book that should interest you. I mean, we are on the drugs addiction and recovery podcast. What the recovery part. So the solution. Yeah. Uh, you've, you've identified the problem and we have the, these institutional addictions, uh, What's the recovery stage? Uh, you know, in the in the book, I say that the first step in re the recovery process for these institutions is is transparency. You know, is recognizing that you in fact have a problem, right? Uh, so we need uh, much more robust data surveillance and data transparency. Now it seems uh, you know I've, it seems odd for me to be advocating for more state surveillance. Some of my other work has identified the problems inherent in state surveillance, but um, you know the, the the government is the only institution we have that has the power to do this work, right? Um, court the courts can't do it by themselves. You know the journalists can't do it. The scholars can't do it. We need a, an enforceable regulatory mechanism and data collection mechanism inside our apparatus of state to make sure that these practices um, are, 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 uh, are not harmful. Um, so data transparency is key. We have to be collecting much more consistent data on prisoner, on, on prison healthcare practices, like what the prisons are actually doing. Um, I think that is, is first and foremost what's important. And with that information uh, now transparent and now uh, accessible to the citizen, we can make, I think, engage in, in a much more robust argument and debate about whether or not we want to keep these institutions this way. Obviously, I align myself politically with with prison abolitionists. Um, I think there are, there's a way to do this that we're not we're not we're not exploring, um, and so um, uh, you know the. The I didn't I didn't anticipate making this argument, but it's one I think that I, I'm comfortable with in the end of the, at the end of the day that these drugs are up are upholding that uh, this this structure, and so um, you know the I mean it seems kind of bold to say or maybe a stretch to say that the power of pharmaceutical corporations has to be pulled back. Mm -hmm. um, you know there the, there's they they're, they're uh, connections to these other institutions have never been fully explored, and I mean we have to they have to get out of there, right? <laughs> you know, in, in some way. Um, I mean, and I I think about with this project, you know, all the things I saw, but then I think about all the things I didn't see. I think about all of the you know all the contracts, you know, for example, between pharmaceutical companies local distributors and prisons, right? All the contracts, you know, um, the money that's at stake. Um, we're talking about tens and tens and tens of, of millions of dollars. Uh, you know, I make the claim in the book that totally unevidenced that the United States <laughs> government is the single largest purchaser of psych meds the world over by far. And that's if you include the VA, 
you include Medicare, Medicaid, you include these prison systems, uh, the children, the, the systems that that's provide medicines for this would be Medicaid for kids in foster, the foster system. Um, and so, you know, it, we, we could have a, a federal government a policy approach that rethinks that um, and tries to reduce our reliance right on these on these technologies. So I have to ask. Um... You must be on the the, um, the circuit giving talks and um, doing news and radio. Um, what other kind of projects, though, are you working on? Um, you know, after you finish a book like this, there's a bit of exhaustion. <laughs> right. But I for a while, I've been um, working on a new project that is looking at the artificial pancreas. Um, uh and so the artificial pancreas is a is a externally worn technology uh, for managing diabetes, and I, I'm fascinated with biotechnology and its kind of social dimensions. And so I'm interested in the development of the artificial pancreas um, and how that development has been racialized, um, uh, both from the algorithms that the the technology uses to determine how much insulin you get to the ways in which the companies are marketing and promoting who the ideal users are, to the real, I think one of the real problems uh, connected to, to, to pharmaceuticals, which is insulin. Um, and so this kind of mechanism for insulin, insulin delivery, um, you know, is very much a part of this kind of um, cabal, if you want to call it that, yeah. around managing metabolic health problems. And so, um, you know, I'm I'm interested in 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 a, in a project that explores that kind of the kind of racial history of, of of the artificial pancreas and what the implications are for the future of diabetes medicine um, and and consequently for the future of Black people. I think that the future of Black people as a, as a group is tied to the future of diabetes, and if we don't get you know, Black people aren't folded into the treatment regimes and and the advanced biotech for diabetes management, they are going to cease to exist. And so, um, you know, that's that's kind of one, you know, what I'm working on now. Sounds off the charts cool. Uh, and I look forward to reading that. Uh, for listeners, uh, I got to give one last shout out to Silent Cells, The Secret Drugging of Captive America by Anthony Ryan Hatch. It's original. It's evocative. It's uh, truly interdisciplinary. And as I... Uh, You've all figured out by listening, it's tremendously relevant to what's going on to the U.S. and the wider world today. So thanks so much for, for talking with me. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much, Luke.